Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this inaugural Scottish Self-Build and Renovation Programme. My name is Gavin Esselmont. I'm your host for this evening. Uh, we kick off this schedule of uh, Self-Build programmes uh, today uh, with uh, Duncan Robson of DWR Architects. Um, if the technology gods are, are looking over us this evening, uh, we are hopefully going live across uh, all our social uh, media channels. If you have any questions or comments on the program, um, could be about your, your project, it could be about self-building generally, or you've just got a general interest uh, in, in uh, doing restorations and renovations, please feel free to uh, post them into your comments feed and we will see these and, and address them as at the end of the program. So as I said, we are joined by Duncan Robson and I'm just gonna go on to a screen share with Duncan. Good evening, Duncan. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to see you. Um, is how is everything going at your end? You're in Aboyne, I believe, Aberdeen. Yes, it's a Drisha Boyne tonight. Um, but uh, yep, yeah, out in Aboyne, nice place to be. <laughs> Are you working this weekend, or have you been uh, just taking a couple of days off? No, I've been working this weekend. I'm busy at the moment. Oh no! Okay, well, yeah, it's, been a, yeah. it's been a. It's all good. It's, it's been a good day for uh, for work, and that's for sure. I was uh, I've taken a walk up uh, River Day, did a ten mile walk today, so I'm a bit tired. So if uh, if we're all over the place today, just my fault. It's my fault. I can't help it. But uh, oh, I really do well, appreciate you joining us. Uh, yeah, we had a chat good. yesterday, and uh, it was good to understand that your experience kind of goes right across. Um, you know, the states, Bermuda, I think you mentioned, yeah. uh, with big commercial developments, with uh, you know the restoration projects, the heritage projects as well, which is is quite an interesting one because there's so many different uh, buildings that uh, really need to be saved. So it's really good that you can actually provide that uh, that experience as well. How how long have you been back in uh, back in Scotland for? Thirteen years. Oh, okay. Yeah. Came back in two thousand and seven. <laughs> So it was good. It was good to adjust to uh, the smaller scale project, which I enjoy doing the most anyway. Yeah. Uh, as I've gotten older, it's the people I enjoy, and I enjoy getting my hands on being technical yeah. with the, the designs. And every every client, every customer must be completely different in terms of their their needs, their desires. I mean, you know, I guess every build is completely different. It could be driven by, by perhaps maybe less able people that need a completely different approach to perhaps something else it's an old old building that uh, really doesn't uh, you know needs a completely different approach i mean you must you must see every different type of project uh, coming i guess yeah that's that's why i enjoy doing what i do though because it's it's got that variety uh, not just in the buildings which have their own stories whenever you look at an old building uh, there's always a story once you look at how it's built because when you get into old buildings, they're never just one vintage. They've mm. evolved and been changed, and you can see that. And yeah. uh, as I said, I enjoy the people more and more as I get older because they've always got their stories too. Mm. And what's happening mm. with a new build, if you're working with a, an existing building, is their story is going to be brought into this building. And, and I really enjoy doing that. Yeah, that's good, I think. I'd say I can imagine uh, with Aberdeen and, and where obviously we are based, I mean, obviously this has been uh, broadcast across uh, Scotland further afield, but uh, certainly in Aberdeen, there's a, a variety of kind of older, older buildings that uh, uh, that really do need to be saved. And, uh, you know, we can't just rely on the council to uh, to save them because, again, cash-strapped uh, uh, pockets really don't deliver kind of old buildings and very difficult buildings. So uh, one of the things we might talk in, in the in, later on in these series of programmes is about maybe you know how do you, how can we get the, the community involved 
in saving these buildings. Um, I believe there's one in Aboyne as well that uh, that's hit the headlines recently, uh, trying to save that hotel. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's gradually run down, and as we're more aware of sustainability. Our existing buildings, they're all, they've all got what you call embodied energy in them. Mm. So knocking them down and replacing them is really intensive with a lot of uh, non-renewables. So yeah. when we can reuse a building and it makes sense, it's good to do. Um, yeah. And if we can make them more energy efficient, which the industry has really embraced more, uh, that's all to the good as well. Yeah, oh, good. Well, without further ado, um, I'm going to pass the baton to you, Duncan. Uh, we have a presentation that uh, that you've kind of prepared. Thank you very much for that. That's going to basically talk through the basics. So there may be people watching this that uh, that um, are maybe a bit more experienced in doing this, and maybe they might be even further uh, ahead in the project. But this is really about starting at the beginning and saying, right, these are the things that we should be thinking about. And uh, yeah, we'll have a few questions and uh, answers at the end of the, the session. So um, we'll just go and do a, a quick uh, screen share, hopefully. And uh, yeah, we'll see how this goes. My name is Duncan Robson. I'm a chartered architect with over 35 years of experience in architecture and project management. I'm also the owner of DWR Architecture in Aboy. Thank you to Scottish Self-Build and Renovation for providing the platform to present managing your self-build or renovation project. A self-build project can be a new house build on its own plot of land, barn or steading conversion, renovations, alterations or additions to existing buildings. I'm going to talk through a general overview of various aspects of self-build from beginning to end. One of the first things you need to consider is money. You need to set a realistic budget and start managing costs at the earliest possible opportunity. How much can you afford to spend? Will you spend 50,000 or 2 million? To do this, you should look at your cash available on hand. What equity do you have in your property? And how much are you able or prepared to borrow? You should also look at the proposed value on completion, sometimes known as a return on investment. You can look at local property agents, valuations of uh, similar properties in the area of what you're proposing to build to see what your top line will be. You also need to consider how long you'll stay there. Are you looking to make a fast profit and do a flip sale? Or is this going to be the long-term family home? On average, people stay in their own house for just under 21 years. From a nationwide building society survey, the average increase in family home from 1975 to 2019 was 2.9% over the rate of inflation. In my experience, small scale alterations or additions rarely return an instant profit. In fact, self-builds are not necessarily cheaper, but they are nearly always better. Not all of your money will go on the construction. A significant amount, of course, will go on the purchase of your property and legal costs. Another not insubstantial amount will go towards statutory and consultant costs and fees. You'll notice in this example, there isn't an amount for VAT, as new houses are zero rated. 
you'll notice on here that the purchased cost is roughly about a quarter of the overall project. On other projects, you may need to consider extra additional costs. On a remote site, for example, you may find that the cost of getting electricity to the property is quite high, easily up to £20,000. Private drainage could easily run up to £10,000. When you're working on existing buildings, VAT kicks in at its normal rate, which is currently 20%, which can take a sizable amount of money out of your overall budget. One of the first questions I'm regularly asked before pen has even touched paper is, so how much will the building cost? In order to answer that, we really do need to put some measurements on things. What I've shown here is a list of house types and approximate gross internal floor area and costs from low, average and higher. Although it's easy to focus on the low column, we have to be honest that that's probably unrealistic unless you're going to use a straight off-the-shelf kit. The higher costs are indicative of something like a passive house, a higher specification, and for most properties, the average column is a realistic price. The costs shown here are a couple of years old now and are based on a general contractor carrying out all the work and being responsible for the construction management. I've also observed over the last couple of decades that the expectations for the size of homes has increased significantly where 150 square metres plus is becoming the norm. The illustration here shows a fairly typical construction cost breakdown for a new self-built house. You'll notice that most of the costs go on the joinery work and the builder work. Two other segments that are fairly significant, one being preliminaries. Preliminaries generally cover things such as insurances, machine or equipment hire, fuel costs, scaffolding, site toilets and welfare facilities, etc. The other, provisional sums. Provisional sums are allowances for work or materials that have not been fully specified and costed when construction work begins. Examples for a provisional sum might include kitchen fixtures, bathrooms, or perhaps finishes, which have still to be specified. I'd make a note that provisional sums will also change up or down as final selection is completed. A 20% variation on this sum can be expected. If you are considering managing the construction yourself, you might save up to 20% on the overall construction. As tempting as this might sound, I would note that you really need to be experienced and have good contacts. You need to set off the potential savings against the loss of earnings from your normal job. Construction project management also requires health and safety risk assessments, method statements for carrying out all work. It is very onerous, very stressful, and you do need to be experienced to know what you're doing. Prior to the commencement of any construction work, you must ensure that there is adequate insurance in place for all aspects of the work. Homeowner insurance needs to be in place for your existing property. 
If you are appointing a general contractor, you will need to check that he carries adequate contractors all risk insurance as well as third party liability. Third party liability insurance covers the risks of fire, theft or damage to existing property, including potential damage to your neighbours. Contractors all risk covers new work. If you are considering carrying out or managing the construction yourself, then I would urge you to take out self-build insurance policy. This should provide cover for your own labours as well as separate trades or firms that you employ. The general level of cover at the moment for construction insurance is around two million, and then on third party for life or injury, 10 million pounds. Building warranties, often referred to as structural warranties, apply mainly to new builds. It's not compulsory, but most lenders will require one. You may have trouble selling a house if it's less than 10 years old, if you don't have a warranty in place. Lenders will typically only lend on a new build when the property is covered by a warranty scheme, for example, the NHBC Buildmark Scheme, or alternatively, a Council of Mortgage Lenders Professional Consultants Certificate, often referred to as a CML. Structural warranty provides insurance and warranty to protect homeowners should a problem occur when their home before or after completion of construction. It is also transferable if a house is sold. A CML certificate, on the other hand, is not an insurance policy. It's simply a single page document signed by a professional construction consultant, certifying in summary that he or she has visited the site from time to time and that the property has generally been constructed to a satisfactory standard and in general compliance with the drawings and specifications. The professional usually states the amount of professional indemnity insurance that he or she will maintain. That insurance, however, covers the professional, not the homeowner. You may be in the position where you've decided you want to build your own home and are looking for the perfect location. First place to look might be your local solicitor property centre. You could ask around locally if property might be coming on the market. Local architects often know of new plots. Estate owners are known to sell off some properties from time to time without necessarily advertising. If you find a site or a plot you like, getting the opinion of an architect can be beneficial in spotting its potential or significant hazards. Before submitting a formal offer on a plot, you might also consider paying for some site analysis, looking into the planning history, assessing the physical constraints or issues with the land, or identifying the location of the nearest utilities such as power, water, etc. Appointing a good architect will make a major difference to the quality of your self-build experience, the quality of the design and the finished building. The title architect is protected in law in the UK. Only a person who has undergone a minimum of seven years of thorough education, training and experience is eligible to join the architect's register and become an architect. Registered architects are legally held to strict codes of professional conduct and practice. 
members of the Royal Institute of British Architects and the Royal Incorporation of Architects in Scotland are held to higher standards still, including a minimum requirement of continuous and ongoing professional development and training. Smaller practices of no more than six staff will typically provide a more personal service with experience and flexibility to suit most self-builder needs and budgets. The larger practices tend to find it more difficult to offer the same level of personal service. The principal or partner architect is also the one that should be managing your project on a day-to-day -day basis. Architects are required by law to carry professional indemnity insurance. Most lenders will also require this. There are other types of designers, but none are as well trained in design or held accountable to the same standards as above. Health and safety is paramount in the construction, future maintenance and end of life of your new building. The Construction Design and Management Regulations of 2015, commonly referred to as the CDM regulations, place greater emphasis on domestic self-build projects than before. Complying with the CDM regulations will help ensure that no one is harmed during the work and that your building is safe to use and maintain while giving you good value. Effective planning will also help ensure that your work is well managed with fewer unexpected costs and problems. Many clients, particularly those who only occasionally have construction work done, are not experts in construction work. Although you are not expected to actively manage or supervise the work yourself, you do have a big influence over the way the work is carried out. Whatever the size of your project, you decide which designer or contractor will carry out the work and how much money, time and resources available. The decisions that you make have an impact on health, safety and welfare of workers and others affected by the work. It's important that you appoint the right people at the right time. If more than one contractor or trade is involved in your project, you are legally required to appoint in writing a principal designer and a principal contractor. A principal designer is required to plan, manage and coordinate the planning and design work. Appoint them as early as possible so that they can help you gather information about the project site and ensure that the designers have all they can to check that it can be built safely. Usually the principal designer is appointed through the architect. A principal contractor is required to plan, manage and coordinate the construction work. Usually your main contractor will take on the responsibility for the principal contractor role. If you are carrying out a project on a separate trades basis, then a joiner is maybe the best trade to appoint as your principal contractor as they tend to be on the site for the longest duration during the construction period. The architectural design of your project is a process starting from the concept ideas, initial designed brief, developing the design details and the specifications and stages so that the final construction is well considered and fully coordinated. In developing your brief, the architect will want to talk to you in fairly intimate detail about what you hope to achieve and just what features you want your new home to have. The headings under which this discussion will probably progress may be your budget, spatial requirements, your proposed occupation, what are you going to use it for, the construction type and your preferences for materials. Using this brief, the architect can then start to develop sketch plans and perhaps draft up 
perspectives showing what the building may look like from the outside, perhaps a computer model. This will be used to help continue the discussion to make sure that they're providing you with what you're looking for. And at the same time, make sure the developing house designs are likely to find favor with the planners. At this stage, you should also make sure that you can verify that the project is capable of being completed within your budget. Once you've settled on an outline sketch design, the architect will then move on to the preparation of more detailed plans that will be suitable for an application for planning permission. It's at this stage that important issues regarding window types and details, building colours, roof finishes, driveways, and a myriad of other aspects are decided. For most self-builders, this stage is perhaps the most exciting. Most self-build projects will require some statutory approvals, such as planning permission, perhaps listed building consent, and building warrant. Your architect will prepare and submit the necessary documents for a planning application and pursue it with the authorities on your behalf. He will discuss any matters arising from the application with the planning officers, conservation officers, and roads authorities, etc. If any amendments are suggested or required following meetings or letters, then the architect will discuss these with you before agreeing to them. Once a planning approval has been secured, your architect will then proceed to prepare and submit plans for building regulations approval. These will include any necessary structural calculations and specifications describing the basic construction of your new home, alterations or additions, a range of health and safety standards and any energy conservation issues. If any special foundation details or designs are required as the result of either the soil investigation during the course of the application being assessed, then the architect will usually arrange for these to be carried out by other professionals on your behalf. The fees for these additional professionals will normally be charged to you directly as they are outside the architect's normal scope of activities. Any warranties and liabilities given will devolve directly to you. Once the building warrant application has been submitted, your architect will proceed to draw up a detailed set of specifications to accompany the plans and obtain competitive tenders from suitable builders or contractors. Insufficient specification details can result in a wide range of prices from competing builders. Where information is lacking, the builder will generally decide what you're going to get. Since the selected builder is usually the lowest price, this will have a direct impact on the quality of the materials used and the finished building. A properly drawn up specification will save time, define the quality, and save you money over the life of the building. Generally, it is 15 times more expensive to make changes during construction than at the design and specification stages. When it comes to finding a contractor, your architect is well placed to recommend reputable firms experienced in the type and size of your project. Once contractor quotes have been received, your architect will provide recommendations on the best value contractor and assist in the preparation of contract documents. Once construction starts on site, your architect will visit the site and make spot checks to see that the construction is being carried out in accordance with the approved contract documents. If any form of certification is required, such as review of progress or contractor payment applications, your architect will undertake this. Once the building work is complete, you and your architect will inspect your completed project together to check for defects. 
If there are any present, or if work has not been completed to a satisfactory standard, your builder will be required to put this right prior to you accepting practical completion of the works. Before construction starts, you should have a construction program planning for the sequence of different work, trades and material deliveries. This is especially helpful in identifying components with a long lead delivery time. A Gantt charge, such as this, can be used to identify tasks which can have a direct impact on the completion date for the construction. Handing over and moving in. This is what it's all been about. And once your renovation, extension or new home is completed, it will be handed over in return for the final stage payment. Normally, a retention of 2.5% is held back out of the total contract price. This is held by you, the owner, to ensure that there are resources to cover the cost of any material or workmanship defects which become apparent once you've occupied the building. This is then payable to the contractor once known defects have been sorted and at the end of the rectification period, which may be six or 12 months, depending on the conditions of the construction contract. I've prepared this general advice leaflet that I can send to you for free. Please go to the Talk to Us page on our website at www.dwrarchitect.com for our contact details. I'll now hand you back to Gavin, who I believe has been receiving some of your questions. Thank you, Duncan. Uh, hopefully you can still hear me. Am I still? Yes. Can good, you hear me? Good. Yeah, technology is working for us tonight, that's for sure. Well, thank you very much for that. It's obviously a lot uh, of information for such a short period of time. Uh, but actually, it's, it's very uh, important that people can actually understand what is uh, required uh, to be able to, to to kick off these kind of uh, projects, it's uh, it's, it's quite a, a scary time to <laughs> to be either one starting a project, but also kind of uh, continuing and staying sane throughout it. So, uh, so no, I really do appreciate you taking the time out to um, to put that together. Uh, we have had some questions as you as you mentioned, um, <clears throat> and I'm just going to fire these at you. So you may find that uh, you're you're. You're, you're not able to um, to answer them, but I'm sure you have an answer for everything. So let's start off with the first one. I can try. Um, <laughs> so we've had uh, a question about a lady who's uh, uh, planning her first three-bed bungalow. Uh, it's um, very, very start of the process, and she's really asking the question about underfloor heating or radios, question mark. Okay. Um, both systems will heat your home. Um, Underfloor heating works well, especially if you're going to look at uh, a low energy, low temperature system, such as air source heating. Uh, radiators work better with a, a higher uh, heat system, such as an oil or a gas boiler. Um, and it can be different folks for different strokes. A lot of people like underfloor heating. It's very comfortable. You don't have any radiators on your walls, so your furniture layouts are very flexible. As I mentioned, uh, an air source or ground source heating tends to be a lower temperature heating system than you get from a, an oil boiler. And uh, that works well with underfloor heating because it needs to be a low temperature. The, uh, slight, the slight downside is that the underfloor heating is a slower response time. It doesn't heat up as quickly or cool down as quickly as radiators do. Um, Another aspect to it is that uh, dogs can sometimes not like it, and if you have poor circulation, uh, it's not so great there. 
retirement or old folks homes tend not to have it for that reason what about um, energy efficiency because obviously we are we're in a place where everybody is really uh, quite rightly focused on uh, if they're going to put the thought and uh, emotional time into building us uh, their own home for 20 30 40 years longer they really want to be focusing about how that building is going to be heated how it's going to be cooled um so is, is there any kind of issues about underfloor heating versus a traditional way uh, in terms of being energy efficient not really they both produce heat into your ideally insulated home um underfloor heating is marginally less efficient and that comes back to the controllability because you, you can't heat up and cool as quickly they're less responsive which means they're just slightly less efficient for that reason. But uh, if you want to use a, sort of a, a low to zero carbon type heating system, which would be, for example, air source heating or the ground source heating, then actually the underfloor is better because it works at a, a lower temperature already. So that's very efficient for the boiler you've chosen. Mm. That's good. And I guess, um, is there anything emerging? I mean, we've got all sorts of other ways of being able to heat the house. There's on air source, there's uh, all sorts of under underground kind of boreholes as well that uh, yeah. can really uh, make for a very efficient house. So I think if you get it right, I think it's actually really exciting to understand all the technologies as well. And I think that's why I'm passionate about self-builds. I really feel that uh, the, the, the ways that you can actually build a house to be very energy efficient, very green, and actually cost efficient as well, because let's face it, you know, we don't want to be spending money where we don't have to. So um, I guess there's experts out there that know these things absolutely um, uh, intimately. We, we do have uh, another company later on uh, in a couple of, uh, sorry, four weeks, who will be talking about that uh, very specifically. So if there's anyone watching this that uh, wants to understand this uh, a bit better than, than listening, we'll be kind of uh, publishing uh, our schedule uh, over the next kind of few weeks. So good, thank you for that. Uh, the next question we've got is professional fees. And um, they're asking how much should they allow for professional fees uh, on top of uh, construction costs? At the very beginning of your budgeting stage, um, when you haven't really worked out much yet, the general allowance would be 15% of the construction cost. And that'll cover a range of different consultant fees. The architect, structural engineer, soil porosity of your off-grid, planning application fees, developer gain, contrib uh, developer contributions, building warrant applets, quite a few different things. And that's a generic allowance. 15% should cover most of those type of investigations and consultant fees. Does that vary? Is, it, is, it, is that regional or is it, I mean, how... If, you, if you're down in London, if you're in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, you know, does is that kind of rule of thumb? I mean, could you apply that to, to any project or? Really, you can only apply that to initial budgeting because you've got to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, it varies tremendously. It varies on the complexity of your project. Um, it, for example, you may not need a drainage survey or an engineer for that. Um, it depends on the scale of the project. The smaller the project, the more expensive the fees are because they're relatively speaking the same amount of works involved. Um, so it, it really varies project to project. Mm. So if you can start at 15%, that gives you a starting point for your initial budgeting. And then from that point on, start getting quotes. 
go to your architect. A good architect will give you not only his fee quote, but he'll also know by looking at the site and chatting with you what other consultants you're likely to require and what those fees might be. Mm -hmm. Start getting hard numbers. We've had a question from Nicola who is um, asking about what is the average time spent on design? Um, I guess that can be quite a difficult question to answer depending on the complexity of the project, as you said, but is there, is there an answer for that one? Uh, generally speaking, I would normally look at uh, probably about a month for the first sketch design from when you first start. At the end of the day, you're looking for, you've appoint, having appointed a, a, an architect, when can he start? And then you have a conversation. And at the very beginning is when you know least about the project. Quite often clients are not really sure exactly what they want. They have a great idea, but taking it to the next stage just takes a bit of a conversation. So I'll allow a bit a month for that. Once mm. you submit for a planning application, uh, that typically takes around two months for a, a self-build project to get the approval. Um, and in that time, I'm pretty risk aversive, so I'll tend not to develop the designs much during that time in case anything fundamental changes. Uh, once that's approved, it takes about a month to get all the different consultant information in and to submit a building warrant application. And that takes about another two months to get the building warrant reviewed. However, during that time, the detailed specifications can be worked up. And at about the end of the two month period, you can go and get uh, tender prices from reputable contractors. Uh, and that takes about between four and six weeks. Uh, so that is a, a very broad brushstroke uh, overview of how long it might take to get from contacting an architect to when you're ready to start construction. Are you finding any impacts right now with obviously COVID going on and uh, all the other impacts that we're experiencing? Is, are you finding a slowdown on planning approvals or um, any other impacts? No, I, I do believe that the planning department's a bit quieter. Uh, the, the biggest impact for me and my business is that construction stopped. So projects that I had that were under construction have just had to stop. Ones that were due to start are now waiting in line for when it starts again, which will hopefully be this week. So mm -hmm. that's been the bigger impact. Yeah. Uh, Nicola, hopefully that's answered your question. Thanks for that. Um, we also have a question about uh, what is the going rate for an architect? That's uh, really not very easy to answer. <laughs> there, is, there isn't a number. Um, it'll depend on, uh, well, it depends what you want them to do. When I'm starting a project where it's really not clear what the size of the building is yet, I can't give a fixed price for my own projects. Mm -hmm. So I'll do those on an hourly rate with a limit. Uh, now, architects' rates, it'll depend on the experience, the specialism, uh, size of the practice. So. A chartered architect will typically start at around about 55 or 60 pounds an hour, um, but can easily go up to 150, depending if they're specialized or not. Mm -hmm. I usually, for, for when it's not defined work, I'll put a limit to say, look, we'll do work up to 500 or 1,000 pounds with a checkpoint, just so that it doesn't run out of control. Once we've got a project defined where we know what it is, roughly how big it's going to be, then we can give a, a fee quote. Some architects work on what you call scale fees, which is a percentage of the construction cost um, on, a, on a new house that's pretty straightforward. That might be as low as 5%, 5.5% of the construction cost. Uh, on, on a small listed building that's really complicated, that could easily go up to 14% or more. Mm -hmm. Generally, uh, in my practice, I'll look at the scope of work 
base it against projects that are similar to have done before. And I'll give a fixed price so that people know when they start, what they're going to get and what they're going to be paying. And that only changes if the scope of work or the design mm -hmm. changes significantly at a later stage in the project. That's one thing I was going to ask, I guess, with fixed price uh, quotes, that uh, if there is any significant changes, um, it could be client-driven, it could be product-driven, could be service-driven. Um, trying to manage that and being upfront and honest with the client to ensure that they are aware that every time you make a change, uh, you're likely to incur additional costs and not just uh, time and labour but uh, of the design team, but um, obviously they could have a, a serious effect on what's already been done. Uh, it could be product choice as well. Could the, the ramifications yeah. for change could be quite huge, especially when you're on site. Um, That's right. Well, good. certainly... Uh uh, as I mentioned in the presentation, design is a process worked up in stages. So at each stage where, you, let's say you've done the first part and you've got the spatial layout sorted, that should stay pretty much there with enough flexibility for the design to be refined. And if, if a client decides they want to add a room after you've got planning approval, clearly that's an extra cost. There's a lot of mm -hmm. more work involved to go back and do that. Change happens. Um, and so we have tools for managing change within the construction period as well. Uh, yeah, and I guess as as a client sees their project and you know their dream uh, rise out of the ground, then there's likely to be quite significant changes as well. It could be that once you're you're seeing this physical thing in front of you, that you know you maybe want to change the orientation of a room or whatever. And, and I guess these things happen. It's uh, it's really just understanding the impacts of that. I guess that's your job as an architect, as a project manager, to ensure yeah. that they understand what those ramifications are. But these are things that should all have been talked about at the early stages. Um, we start by looking at the site and where the sunlight comes from and where the views are, looking at the site first. So you know this before you start. So there really shouldn't be something as fundamental as changing the orientation of a room. But people mm -hmm. can change their minds. And as I say, we have the tools for it. But major changes later in the project are pretty costly. So it's, yeah. it's good to have all those kind of conversations while it's on the drawing board. It is about relationships as well. I mean, you're you're on the journey with the client, and it's really important to get to select the right architect that's right for you and the project as well. I mean, if if you know if you get it wrong at the start, you know how would you change that out? You know that again, that could be as costly as making physical changes on site. So it um, is, yeah. Um, one other question uh, that I've actually got in terms of insurances and warranties, but um, when you have, let's say you've bought the land, you've got the plot of land, you've got perhaps an outline plan and permission, so you do realise that you could po probably do make this happen. When should you be purchasing all these insurances? And uh, like, for example, uh, you mentioned there, I think it was third party or, or public liability or something. When, when should you actually be purchasing, putting these uh, insurances in place? Well, if you've bought a property with anything on it, then you'll want to have homeowner insurance on it anyway, just as if you buy any other home. Um, in terms of the uh, build builder work insurance, again, it comes back to whether you're doing the work yourself. If you're getting a contractor to do it, then he's the one that will have the uh, contractor's all risk insurance and the third party insurance. As a homeowner, you will need to let your homeowners insurance company know that you're having work done. And what happens is during the course of the construction, the work that's completed and becomes part of the structure starts to fall within your homeowners insurance because you'll have paid for it and you now own it. So that transition occurs all through the job. 
Uh, Nicholas asked us a question, uh, and it uh, goes back to your presentation uh, where you mentioned about uh, about building your own home. It's not necessarily cheaper, but it is better. Uh, so apart from the obvious, having a design uh, that suits your family, what else is better about it? Is it, it cost-driven? Is it schedule-driven? Is it um, you know perhaps you've you've, you've uh, lived your life and now you've got some pennies in the bank and you want to kind of uh, build your dream home? You know what what? Oh, there are so many opportunities for having a much better quality building. Right back at the very beginning, uh, when you look at your site and you actually tailor your building to fit the site and the views out and to suit your lifestyle. If you've got an outdoor lifestyle, having, for example, a mudroom at the back, which doesn't happen in off the peg houses. A mudroom? You ever heard of a mudroom? A boot room? No, please tell. What's a mudroom? Oh, okay. Well, Pen at the know, we are quite a rural uh, country. And we all like, well, a lot of us like our outdoor stuff. You've got dogs, bikes, kids, boots, and so on. Uh, and having a space that's not your front door where your visitors will come, where you can go and take your wet coats and your boots and pile them up, uh, doesn't exist in most off-the-peg off houses. And yet, okay. it's a really important room. Another aspect, too, is that uh, utility rooms in most standard houses are big enough for a machine. But they're not actually big enough to use as a utility room. These are mm -hmm. just little things. But actually having uh, having the rooms facing out to the views that you want to see by looking at the site, having the house oriented and the rooms oriented so that the sunlight comes in the right time in the right way and you can take advantage of solar gain, which is essentially free heat and power. You can do all of that when you're designing mm -hmm. it from scratch. Um, a, a kit house is not designed in that way. They're a prototype. They're they're plonk down to face the road. So you lose all these opportunities. And you they're a little bit of one size fits all, but actually one size fits nobody. So having a building and a room, rooms that you like, where you like them to fit the way you live, you have that for the rest of your life, for the time mm -hmm. you stay there. That makes a big impact to how you to how you feel. Another aspect too is when you're doing a self-build yourself, you can say where different uh, where you spend your money and where the different qualities go. So you may want to have triple glazing, you may not. Um, but you can choose all of those things. And almost every time when you're building a house from scratch, the overall quality of every component is usually higher than a mass-produced house, which is basically done right down to the last half millimetre to be as economical as they can to make a profit for the developer. So in every quality aspect I can think of, building your own home, you'll end up with a better result. And I can imagine, I mean, I enjoy sitting out in the evening with perhaps a, a glass or two, and um, I think it's uh, it really helps um, just with mental health. Really, is being able to sit in the sun in the evening. And I know various houses that I've had in the past, you you lose the sun at say six o'clock, and you don't get the sun. And th these are probably things that are important to me. So, in terms of my brief that I would give to an architect or a project manager, would be these are the things that are important to me. I want to be out in the country, for example. I want to be, I want to have the sun all the way through the evening as well. And these are things I guess you can pick and choose if you get the right pl plot. And I suppose as much effort needs to go into finding the right plot as well, because that could probably take as long as it could to to build the home in the first place. It can um, do. And then designing from scratch is when you absolutely maximise the plot itself, what it has to offer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, again, that comes back to the quality. Um, 
so I have one other question in terms of client specifications, and it's about, in fact, we actually probably talked a little bit about that just now, is one of the benefits of having a self-build and, and doing your own project is that you can specify whatever you like. You know, if you travel the world and you've seen all sorts of things, I'm sure you can pick and choose and, and you can really define what your living standards are going to be, which is oh, yeah. really quite exciting. But I guess one of the problems of that is, is is the compatibility so the client likes this the client likes that but then how do you actually build it into a cohesive design which i guess when people are walking into a home you want to make sure that it all fits together um is that something that you've seen problems with in the past where the client kind of specifies perhaps too much and then from a design perspective it just becomes a bit of a an issue uh, to deliver that project uh, it can be um but generally not. It's, it falls into the other aspect that I really enjoy when I meet clients because they have all this history and this stuff. I had one client who, um, I can't remember where they lived, but they had, they had these lamps, these colored lamps from Morocco, and they were quite long hanging ones and said, I'd really want to incorporate this into my house. Can we do that? And I was yes, we did. It looks great and mm. really unique. So you come to their house and they have that, it's like, wow, you won't see that anywhere else. Yeah. Um, the house wasn't designed around the lamp, but we knew that we could <laughs> coordinate all of that. Say, yeah, I can find a place where that will work well. Yeah. By them letting me know they had this, of course, I had it in my mind. I'm going to make a space for that that works with the overall building. I guess if you get it early enough as well, you could really make a feature out of it. I guess you could, uh, one uh, one of my uh, friends, they have uh, quite a, an ornate um, glass horseshoe type glass chandelier, and it's absolutely impressive as you walk into the into the building through the front door but i can imagine if something of that size you know it would be very very difficult to try and incorporate that if the house was already designed and, and you're just trying to yeah. fit that into an existing room it doesn't quite work so um, yeah. so no it's, it's an interesting point but it's all part of the conversation because when you start chatting and finding out about people these things come up and i certainly mm -hmm. find that i get to know what they're what they're what they like what they're going to be like and sometimes they don't need to tell me something i know they'll like it just because i've gotten to know who they are uh, and it's, oh, it's, it's it's great fun no and how 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 are all your projects going at the moment are you kind of are you are you mixed in various kind of projects have you got commercial developments as well or, um how is everything going yeah. with the last three was it four months now 13 weeks of, of lockdown well i was very fortunate i was very busy before we went into lockdown so i'm still working through that those things i definitely had a bit of a setback because we had to work remotely and that that took a bit of change of gear of getting computers out to houses and using things like uh, microsoft teams and zoom and so on to be able to mm -hmm. then share the work and communicate uh, i've had to end up doing work that i normally would have somebody else do so uh, definitely a setback uh, and on the back foot to get back to speed on that, and that's cost us time. But mm -hmm. uh, generally good. Um, my clients have been terrific, um, and most have been, actually all of them have been good at embracing this remote technology. So we're able to have face-to-face -face meetings without being face-to-face. -face. Yeah. So I think we're really fortunate that we actually have this technology right now, yeah. and it would be a different complexion for me, for sure, without it. And with the construction... Uh, sector going back is it next week they're going back um fingers um, crossed uh, the r value stays low this okay. week it'll go back yeah do you find that that's going to cause its own problems trying to everyone trying to get back up to speed and maybe supply chain issues trying to get you know everything back on track i mean the construction is 
Construction Scotland uh, and the CITB have been quite good uh, at uh, preparing and putting good information out to contractors that details procedures. How do you work on a construction site, keeping two meters apart uh, and keeping the virus at bay? Yeah. Um, you can't entirely. There are times that contractors will have to come close proximity, but the guidance is there for that. Um, so that's good. It's going to be definitely a learning curve. Um, it's going to be different. And it can't be the same free for all. The construction industry has historically been a bit flippant about safety, but if a, if a contractor or his men and women aren't, then he'll end up being shut down because all his staff mm. will be down with the virus. Mm. So it's uh, it's something they have to. We've, we're all going to have to learn a fair bit about how to manage with this. But, do you uh, have a role in that as well as as architect as um, the project manager? Uh, do you have a role to ensure that uh, uh, policies procedures are adhered to? Because obviously the contractors will have their own ones, but you'll essentially you have oversight of of the entire project. So the hierarchy, I guess. Part, partly sits with you as well? Well, the approach has been since 2015 that everybody on the project team, uh, that includes the client, is responsible for health and safety. In fact, the client or the home builder oh, well, okay. ac actually is the one that has the responsibility because they're the one appointing the work. So if shortcuts are being taken and things done badly uh, because the client said, oh, just don't bother with that, or, or just if it's under finance or not paid attention to it, they're liable. We're all liable now. So nobody specifically has oversight. We're all liable. Um, clearly, the contractor's more liable for his men and having toolbox talks and has to work out means and methods of doing things safely, which is one of the points I referred to in that presentation about uh, self-builders who want to take on the construction management themselves. The health and safety executive now is, is very clear on domestic type builds about uh, everybody has to be trained understand the risks uh, and proper procedures put in place. And if there are, is an accident, the project manager or the construction manager is the one that takes the hit first. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's quite apart from the health side of it, it's costly too. It's quite so, scary uh, as well. I mean, I can imagine, uh, you know, if the client uh, thought or the house builder were, you know, were aware that they could potentially be not incriminated, that's the wrong word, but essentially be um, well, actually, the, responsibility, the, or maybe it's not, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, yes, it's a criminal offence, yes. It, they can be incriminated. Uh, the wow. key thing for homeowners to do or any self-builder is to appoint the right people at the right time. And yeah. the two roles that must be appointed on domestic projects, which self-builds are, is a principal designer for health and safety and a principal contractor. Okay. So as long as they appoint the right people to do those jobs for them and advise them, they will have been seen to have done their duty. Mm, I guess it's about mitigating this, you know, if they can actually demonstrate to a court that they've mitigated issues as, as far as they could, then that's about, as you say, getting the right professional team. team well, that's all that they can do because the uh, the legislation recognises that most uh, homeowners are not experts in construction. They're not expected to be, but mm. they are expected to be made aware that they do have responsibility towards the safety to make sure it's properly resourced and that there is somebody that looks at the health and safety of the construction process not just that but also what the maintenance and repairs will be in the future yeah geez. Uh, ken's come to us uh, with another question uh, roughly what percentage of self-builds do you see that require bank finance to assist the client with costs and to what extent are you seeing banks who would require a security over the asset, widen their appetite to non-standard construction methods? Wow. 
I have to be honest, it's, that's not something that uh, I get involved with. Um, that is something that falls back to the client to deal with the money themselves. I certainly try and give them an idea of what costs are likely to be. But when it comes to financing, that's not out with my scope of work. It's quite a, it's quite a, it's probably a topic in itself, really, is about the whole. It kind definitely of the, is, and, it, it def uh, and I believe you've got somebody perhaps later in the series who uh, can give some advice on this. Yeah, absolutely, and I think uh, you know maybe Ken can can come come and help us with that kind of topic as well, because this is all about sharing knowledge. It's about uh, hopefully having the right people on the on the programs to be able to talk through the questions because everyone's got questions and maybe a little bit kind of worried about putting it out there but everybody benefits from asking a question and getting the right answers so yeah um ken thanks for the thanks for the question uh we also have a question uh from um uh, someone who's saying do you think the huntley arms will be saved i guess for those that don't know <laughs> what, yeah what this is arms. the huntley arms in a boyne uh will it be saved um i don't know um not in the format that it's in i don't think and that would be a good thing it's uh it used to, the huntley arms used to be a high-end luxury hotel and it it just entered a slow demise uh, and was added to at different periods of time and uh, until it slowly just wasn't viable as a business anymore and it's now mm -hmm. very run down and become a, a a building that would need an awful lot of money spent on it so uh, this is a this is probably an example of of a community coming together in, yeah and and you know i think i saw a little bit of press coverage about it and it was actually really exciting to see people coming forward and saying look we need to save this building and, and that's really exciting because it gets the community it brings the community together but actually the heritage of that building as well is quite on a it's on a prominent site and you yeah. know to see that building kind of uh, get any worse yeah. i think it's a, a criminal you know Oh yeah, well it's it's a hugely important building to Aboyne because it's right in the heart and it's very very visible. Um, I've been involved with that building for the facade, trying to get the facade improved in the past when I did some work for Scottish Enterprise, and uh, I did speak to the building owners at that time. Uh, unfortunately, it was part of a pension group, which means that whole kind of direct sense of ownership is lost. Um, I think it will come back and be used as something. Uh, in my opinion, it probably should take some of the older parts down and reduce the size of it, change what it is. Um, the difficult, it has to be viable. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've done a lot of work on hotels and uh, leisure places over, over the years, certainly when I lived in Bermuda, and uh, the margins in hotels are really tight. So it tends to be really difficult as to how much money can be spent mm -hmm. and actually get that money back. So uh, I think a study needs to be done. I believe there's a a proposal to do a feasibility study to look at the assets that are there, look at what may need done and what it can be as a new business model to maybe work. Mm. Um, finding the injection of cash is going to be the hard part. Maybe that's a, a project for you to take on, Duncan. I would love to. Right. I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. We've got one last question in here from, uh, from Mike Stone. Thanks for the question, Mike. Um, if your home is on a large plot, uh, how would you find out if your plot is allowed to be subdivided for another home or have another home built on the plot? It's a good question. Well, in the first instance, I would go looking at the, the planning file and find if there's anybody in the same postcode that's had a similar sized plot and if they've subdivided it. Sometimes you can tell by looking, but it's not always that easy to get a walk around the neighborhood. So if you can look at the planning file, you can see if somebody's done that and what they came across. The other aspect is to just have a chat 
with your planning officer. Now, before COVID-19, it used to be that the planning officers would come to your local area office, maybe once a fortnight, and be, have a surgery where you could just go and ask them. Uh, and they'll give you a, a quick feedback. Uh, again, if you've got a friendly local architect, have a chat with him, and he'll probably know from experience. Mm. Good. Okay, so I'm conscious of time. We've got two minutes, 20 seconds left. If anyone's got any last questions, uh, we've had a little cheeky comment back. Um, why am I appearing as some random, yes, Duncan, save the Huntley. So there you go. There's uh, <laughs> the, the, the public have spoken, and that's the job for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that would be great. Yeah. Um, yes, if anybody's, uh, if anybody's got any questions on some of that presentation, uh, by all means, uh, look me up and drop me a line on Facebook or take a look at my website. There's a contact. My contact details are on there. Give me a call, and uh, I'll, I'll give any ad advice that I can. Mm -hmm. Are you pro pro prolific on uh, Facebook and social media, or is that not something that uh, architects, uh, architects hang out on? I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't it's we a, all? It's, it's a, um, we have to now, uh, particularly at the moment when we, we can't go out and talk to people and meet people. So it's it's important to, to, to be visible. Mm. So uh, doing some more on that. Yeah, it takes yeah. time though. It's it's not it what I was trained for. I'm an architect. I design <laughs> buildings. <laughs> no, it's certainly a good way of being able to communicate. And again, this is just an example of where we're uh, moving with the times. And COVID's probably given us that little push to uh, supplement our face-to-face -face events. We we run Scottish Self Build across uh, Aberdeen and Inverness, and uh, for next year Perth as well. So it's, uh, but it's not just about face-to-face -face now. It is really about embracing technology and being able to tap into the experience and expertise that. Um, that people like you, you Duncan, and, and many others have. And I think it's really, really exciting to know that this information is now readily available online. Well, well I think a real plus as well is that uh, the technology has made it that we're more reachable, more contactable, and it's still, it boils down to the relationships, building relationships and being able to communicate. So we're in a good place. Quick quest question as you're trying to wrap up. Will there be the shows later this year, do you know, with the COVID-19? Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, it's an, it's, an, it's, a, it's an interesting question. We're obviously, we have one planned for uh, September this year. We are uh, keeping very close uh, eye on the phased uh, relaxation of the rules. Uh, yes, currently we will be doing it. However, the format will be very much different to what people are used to. We, we certainly will not be having uh, this, the stands as close to each other as they as they have been in the past. Um, they'll be very much socially distanced, the stands themselves as well as the people uh, who are coming to the events will have to pre-book and they can only book either morning or afternoon to try and let us regulate the number of people coming to the door. So so at the moment, uh, the, the, the current phased uh, relaxation looks promising for august being the month of events being allowed to happen but again everybody has to demonstrate social distancing not just the event organizers but obviously everybody coming through the front door as well so um if it's the right thing to do if it's the wrong thing to do and um, we make that call and and we obviously kind of engage with uh, the authorities locally nationally um and obviously our stakeholders as well so so yes is the answer currently but everything could change next year we're hopeful that things will come back to that normal. we've just got one okay. last question from from neil uh brotherstone he's just kind of quickly come in on, on youtube if putting temporary services in how close to proposed house should they be 
Well, if you get it right, you can make it part of the structure. Otherwise, what's common is a, a temporary boards put up by a contractor uh, out of the way of construction traffic. So that's what you'd think about your site organization. Where, where are trucks, diggers, cranes, are you going to use them? Where are they going to go and, and uh, keep it out of the way they are, but easily seen so that you can plug into it? And then when you do your final electrical connection uh, with the SSE, it'll be in the house itself. So plan your site, plan the spaces for working. Excellent. Okay, well, we're just going to wrap this up because we've got our time um, and gone slightly beyond our time. So again, thank, Duncan, thank you very much for for joining us today. I, I hope that everybody has uh, found this interesting and, and informative. If anyone has any suggestions about what they might want to see in the future, um, please feel free to get in contact with us and let us know. Uh, we'll be running these uh, regularly every two weeks on a Sunday night at seven o'clock. So now you have a uh, something else to watch other than the, the telly. Um, so we'll be um, publishing them in advance uh, just so that you know exactly what's happening and uh, when it is. So thank you everybody for, for joining us today. Uh, it's It's been our inaugural one. Thankfully, I think the technology has worked. Um, we've not had any issues, so it's uh, it's good to see that. So so again, thank you very much, everybody. And thank you, Duncan. And, thank uh, you. Yeah, see you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. All the best.